0: Hello, and welcome to the Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit So James chapter 5, verse 13 says, James writing, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you this morning again and again, we always do, and we don't want to take it for granted, the incredible gift of your word. I pray now that as we are going to be hearing it taught, I pray that it would be the voice of your spirit, that it would be the clarity of your word, and it would be the focus of Jesus. That's why we're here. Lord, um, I pray you'd use me despite all of me. Um, I submit myself to you. I ask you to get me out of the way so that your Holy Spirit could speak to your people today. We invite you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, uh, this morning I'd like to preach from a creative sermon title that took me hours to come up with. And it's Quality Counsel Part 2. Quality Counsel Part 2. Of course, last week, that was a joke, last week was Quality Counsel Part one. This is part two here and the reason why we entitled this quality counsel is that is characteristic of the passage of scripture that we just read that we are now studying for the second week in a row. It's quality counsel. It's unusual for James almost to be interacting with us this way for the bulk of the book of James. He's been less of a counseling buddy and more like a football coach screaming in your ear to move the ball down the field. We need those friends too, right? Those that will exhort us and in love call us up and call us out to the greater life that God is calling us to. But here it's as if a shift takes place. It's like we met James at the local coffee shop. There we are sitting across from him over a nice cup of joe and James is sort of, counseling us through multiple scenarios and situations of life. There's six of them, uh, specifically. Um, And so we looked at the first three of them, seeing James as a counselor. But it's not just counsel he's giving us. We want to point out, this was the big idea of last week, it's quality counsel. Quality counsel. Man, I just need some advice. No, you don't. No, you need good advice. (laughs) You need the right advice. You see, it's not just the quantity of the counsel. There's a high quantity of counsel in today's day and age with the modern technology we have. With a slide of your finger, you could get a variety of opinions and perspectives. But God would challenge us to heed not just the quantity of what we're hearing, but the quality. What's the quality of it? And when we talk about that, the idea of quality counsel, we're talking about the quality of the contents, The quality of the contents, it makes me think of my time as an early 20-something. I'm now an early 30-something, so I can say things like that as of a couple weeks ago. But as an early 20-something, I lived in the Bahamas for two years. I worked down there at a local little missions facility down there, did some discipleship programs down there. Um, but down in the Bahamas, it's definitely an immersive culture for a Boca Ratonian uh, named Andrew. And I lived there for a couple of years, getting acclimated to the culture, um, the idea of quality content so It reminds me of a time where me and a couple of buds, we were out at the local sort of tourist city center. And right there at the tourist city center, you had a couple local Bahamians hustling. They were selling pre-released DVDs. And it was as... Um, ghetto as you could imagine I mean they were li- I mean there was no display it was like the DVDs were just lined up on the curb so just kind of like what do you want like this is like this is curb buster like blockbuster but a little better so um, it's like the block is hot buster is more like it but um, you would come up and, you- and they had these pre-release DVDs I remember one specifically that I bought it was the dark night before it was even like out I mean it was just kind of out there okay it's a it's a Christian movie about no, just kidding all right but um <laughs> Anyway, it's a Batman movie, so I I remember seeing that, and listen, the best thing about this display was the packaging of these pre-release, that's what they called them, I learned that it's actually this thing called piracy, anyway, these pre-release DVDs, I mean, the packaging, they were wrapped, they were all put together, they had the little security thing you had to peel off, I bought in. What I came to find out when I got home was that the contents of what was within the packaging did not reflect the quality of the package. You could say low quality, like whatever the lowest 360p is, it was like negative 1080p, okay? Um, It was a movie, all right, of a movie, a movie of a movie. Some guy's cousin filming the screen with a potato, most likely, okay? The quality of the contents is not just the package. I think that distinction is important when it comes to counsel. A lot of the times, the deception that we experience is we fall for the quality of the package. It feels right. It looks right. It seems right. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in destruction. The Bible says in Proverbs 12 that the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. You see, there's, there's deception here. What we're called to do as the people of God is tear through the package and get down to the contents. Amen? We're, we're to get into the nitty-gritty of what is this, and how does it agree and align with God and his word? How do the contents of the counsel I'm receiving agree and align with God and His Word? That was the definition we gave last week of quality counsel. Any advice or guidance that agrees and aligns with God and His Word. This is how Scripture would lead us to be counseled. This is how Scripture would lead us to make our decisions Not based on any old advice, but tearing through the packaging to see, is this something that God has said in his word? Or is this something that would contradict something that God has said in his word? Is this something that's consistent with the nature and character of God? As a follower of Jesus, it's old school, it's the bracelets, but it's, would Jesus do this? Is this of him? I mean, this is a standard that we are all called to if we claim to be followers of Jesus. Like, it's another issue if you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus and you have your own. We can have a conversation there. My real issue is with people who claim to be followers of Jesus. You're in or you're out. He says, you're either for me or against me. The question is... Am I your master or not? Are you going to take my advice and my counsel or not? The scriptures say um, in a positive light of this in Psalm 1, I love Psalm 1. We looked at this last week. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in God's law, he meditates day and night. Look at this great promise for those. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper what a great vision for a life that we could live a fruitful life a life that's planted and rooted in the things of God well it's directly connected to the counsel we're receiving so we've gone to God's word here and James is giving us just that he's giving us the quality counsel of God's word he's walked us through already Three specific scenarios. We said first the scenario of what to do when I'm suffering, and he said to do what? Pray, cry out to God, lay hold of God. We then looked at the other word that he uses, cheerful, for the sake of alliteration. We called it being stoked. It's an ancient Greek word that means to be hyped on life, okay? And then we looked at this idea of sickness. That's where we picked off a specific sickness, a specific scenario of sickness that involves becoming weak. Uh, to to the point of of even being bedridden from some illness. Um, And so he's kind of been walking us through these scenarios. Now, where we pick off this morning, pick up, James has three more pieces of quality counsel he's going to give us here in part two. And what's interesting is these last three pieces of counsel, it all pertains to what we would call one another words of advice. You see it there even in uh, the scripture there about confession and prayer in verse 16. He uses even in that that that. That uh, sentence, he uses, that verse, he uses one another two times. Uh, But this certainly isn't the only two times that the phrase one another is used in Scripture. It is all over the Bible. It's describing the only life that a Christian can live, by the way. Which is lived within the context of a local church, a church family. As, As those who have been born again through the gospel of Jesus, he's made us new through dying on the cross, resurrecting from the grave those of us who have trusted in that and have become new in Jesus we not only become sons and daughters of God but we become brothers and sisters we become a big dysfunctional family who are all after the same grace in Jesus And we seek to live in community and honest transparency with each other, bearing with one another in love. That's sometimes most of the process, but at the end of the day, all pursuing the same goal, that same grace in Jesus. It's one another Christianity, which is the only kind of Christianity that the Bible would would give us. Um, We're not uh, able to do that whole thing where we separate my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. They are inseparably connected. And so James is going to counsel us now in that direction. So what we want to look at here in this passage we read is we want to look at three one another words of counseling that James gives us. Okay, Three one another words of counseling that James gives us. The first, we see it there in verse 16, the first of three, is simply to confess to one another. It's the first one another word of advice that he gives us from God's word He says it there in verse 16, confess, confess your trespasses to one another. Your trespasses or your faults or your transgressions. Now, uh, the context here, remember, is backing up a little bit. This is going to help us get to this point where we're talking about confessing sin. That that happened fast, right? Point one, confess your sin. Hello, welcome to church, okay? How did we get here? Uh, Well, previous to this verse, remember, James was talking about a person who was sick, bedridden to the point of needing to call for the elders of the church it seems almost like not that we should pray as a last resort prayer should always be a first response not a last resort but it seems like in this context that this person is at the point of of peril of death terminally ill, and they need to call for the elders of the church to come. And it tells us there, if you go back a few verses there in verse 14, to come and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And it says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. This is calling for the elders. We wrapped up the sermon last week talking about who they are. You could check that all out on the podcast from last week. But these elders, those that lead the church by serving her, are to come And anoint with oil and pray for healing. And God will honor that prayer. This amazing promise that God hears prayer and he responds. His perfect timing in the way that only God can. How many of you guys are thankful for some of your unanswered prayers in life, right? Come on, all right? Thank you, God, that you have not given me everything I asked for. Thank you that you also have when it aligned with your will and what you knew for my life. Well, this is one of those cases where God in his perfect wisdom, as those elders come, they anoint with oil. Now, some think maybe this is... um, you know, medicinal, my essential oil fans in the house, okay? Some think maybe this was ceremonial. We see that also in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm under the impression from my study, it's very likely that this is symbolic. Oil in scripture is often symbolic with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this is a way to say it's only God that can heal you. No man has healed. We don't we don't, you know, some people take it stuff like this, and they've done these healing crusades. Come on, I got the power. Because fill a stadium. Now, listen, I believe God's heals, but God heals not because of man, but because of his spirit. Amen. That he chooses and wills to pour out upon man to bring his healing in the way and in the, in the time that he perfectly desires. And so that, that's what we see here. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now, notice what happens here. The next thing says this, though. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Interesting. You have this, this man who's sick to the point of nearly death who, who needs to call for people, the elders of the church, to come pray for him for healing. And then James says there may be some sin involved in the sickness. James is drawing a connection here, interestingly, between sickness and sinfulness. Now, let, let's tackle this for a second, okay? Okay. Generally speaking, when we look at the meta-narrative of scripture and we understand the gospel, we understand creation, the fall, the restoration of all things, here's what we understand. Generally speaking, a Christian worldview understands that every single thing that's broken in this world is the result of sin. A lot of times we blame God for things that sin is guilty of. Sickness is one of those things. Sickness is the result of sin. Death has spread to all men because of sin. Every human being because of sin is terminally ill in one way or another. And sickness is one of those symptoms of that uh, sinfulness. Uh, We know in the beginning, before sin, there was no sickness. We know that in the new heavens and the new earth, a day that I long for, the longer I live, there will be no more sickness. Cancer will be shut up forever. No more death, no more sorrow. I love the language. Jesus wipes away every tear. No sickness here, guys. But in the meantime, there is sickness, and it is the result, generally speaking, of sin. That said, that doesn't therefore mean every time you get sick, it's because of some specific sin you've missed. And some of us live that way. We think, like, God is this cosmic, like, we look at him like Zeus with lightning bolts or something. God is not Zeus. God is God, okay? And God is not often, every time, looking for these, uh, you know, sometimes God does discipline us in love, but some of us, we're under this impression that, that every time something's wrong with me, it's an indication that God is mad at me. So difficult circumstances to us equate to God's rejection or him being upset with us, and that's also not true, Okay? Um, and there's people that teach this stuff that, that need to, to have their mouths not open. And they teach stuff, and, and people give them money till they can be healed, or people, um, they, they don't just don't, you're, you don't have enough faith, or you're, you're, you're too, bro- listen, we're all broken and sinful. So not every time, this, this is a, a flawed doctrine. Jesus dealt with this after he healed that blind man, and they were going, well, whose parent was sick? Who's, who, what? You know, and this has been something that's happened forever. Um, So not every time that we're sick is it traced to a specific uh, uh, sinfulness in our lives. However, that said, it can be. It can be. There are many cases in Scripture, and I have experienced some cases, I believe in my life, where my sickness was the result of sin that God was leading me to, to be aware of that was causing the sickness. Um, not all the time, not all the time. Remember Job and his friends are like, Job, what was your sin? He's like, I don't know. You know why Job suffered? Because he was faithful to God. So listen, that whole like, that doesn't work there, right? But there are many cases where sickness is equated to sin. Leprosy was often associated with sin. You have 1 Corinthians 11 that talks about some people were sick in the church, at the church of Corinth, because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. It's like, you wonder why you're sick. You're not taking to heart the gospel. Interesting. Um, I have uh, friends and loved ones that I know that either are sick or that have passed away because of sin. It was sin that led them to the fatal end. Uh, Friends that took their own lives, friends who were addicted, uh, friends who died of sin-related diseases. Uh, I want to get to this point and say that The point that James is getting at here when he leads us to confess our sins, okay, is James is painting a picture for us, I want you to hear this, of the nature of sin. He's painting a picture for us to understand the nature of sin. According to this diagnosis and description of sin, we would be foolish to consider and to to look at sin as sort of this innocent pet that we manage, right? Like, oh, It's sin just sin. There it is, little sin. No, no, scripture would lead us to have almost this healthy respect for the destructive nature of sin. Uh, The way that it says in, in Genesis, the first time we see temptation involved after the fall is with Cain. Prior to killing his brother Abel, it's the sin of anger that translated to action. And God said to Cain, he said, sin lies at your door and its desire is for you. Notice the like language he's using there to describe sin it's lying at your door not like a package from amazon okay think about this he's painting a picture of of sin to be almost this like murderous creature that's not to be put on a leash and domesticated but it's lying at your door its desire is for you and it's not good desires Remember James talking about this too early on in chapter 1 when he said that when sin is full grown, it brings forth death? He's talked about this. This is the nature of sin. It, it, it brings death with it. They're almost synonymous, sin and death in whatever form and fashion it comes. Um, now, the good news here, we always need to make sure that when we talk about like scary, really sad things, this is why we worship Jesus. Amen? This is why we keep coming back. Not because we've conquered the thing lying at our door perfectly, because one of the things you learn right as you follow Jesus is they keep showing up. He just, I'm back, right? But here's what we've all come to a common place of. Jesus is more powerful than sin. Sin may be this murderous creature, but Jesus was murdered on our behalf so that the power of sin was absorbed on him so that we could be victorious over the sin lying at our door. This is the gospel. And it starts with this great truth. Did you see it there in that next verse? If he's committed sins, verse 15, he will be forgiven. Can we just rest in that for a second? Have you committed sins? Have you, like Cain, opened the door to that destructive sin that was lying at your door? Can I tell you? You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Jesus took that sin On his back, on the cross. That's the message of the gospel. You don't earn it, you don't achieve it, but you can receive it. It's his forgiveness. You're forgiven in Christ, in Christ. Now, if you are not a Christian, I would say this you can be forgiven. If you are apart from Jesus right now, I would say this you're not forgiven. But if you look to Jesus who paid a debt for you, you can be forgiven. He wants to forgive you. He longs to forgive. The idea is he releases the debt that you owe. Forgiven. So you're forgiven. Now, that's what God does toward our sin. That's what God does. That's what the, the good news of the gospel is. Is that none of us, no matter how much good we do, we could ever, never eliminate the debt of what we've done. But God clears that through Jesus. But what James leads us to do is not just to see what God does toward our sin... But it would be healthy for us to understand how we should approach our sin. you with me? He says, God forgives the sin, but he says in the next verse, confess your trespasses. So we have how God deals with sin. He forgives it through Jesus. But then he have, has how we as Christians should posture ourselves toward our sin, which is that we should kind of make war against it. He uses the word of, of to confess it. Now, this is the same idea of Genesis, right? It lies at your door, but you should rule over it. This is a posture that says I'm not going to treat sin with the illusion that it's some sort of pet thing that I can manage. Jesus forgives it, but I come against it as as one who understands how susceptible I am and how prone to destruction I will be if I sort of domesticate this thing. Uh, The way we said it last week is this, and we need to understand it this way. Uh, We cannot manage our sin secretly because sin is not an employee. It's not an employee that does what you tell it to do. Sin in scripture is a master that instead enslaves us. And this is the theme of scripture. The sin that we don't kill in turn kills us. It grows and it's just a little creature. But the more you feed it, it's like the stronger it gets. It becomes full grown and it becomes this slave master. And we're led here by James to take a certain posture that says, okay, here's what we're going to do with our sin. Jesus forgave it. We're not going to respect it. We're going to recognize the fatal illness that it is, and we're going to seek the remedy through Jesus. And here's what Jesus says to do. He says, here's how we approach our sin. Here's our posture. We confess it. This is how we make war with our sin. We don't slay our sin with our, you know, mighty strength. Have you tried that? That doesn't work, does it? It lasts like a week or two. And then you start, like, counting the days of how long you've been without that sin and which is basically you're just counting down your life until the next time you do it, right? It's pretty much what it is. And it's, you're cast away. You're Tom Hanks. There you are, just like almost there, okay? Wilson, all right? Um, irrelevant, okay. Point is, it's a posture, right? It's a posture that you take that doesn't manage it, but recognizes the, 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 the unconquerable enemy that it is. And in recognizing that, he says confess. Now, the word confess, this is an interesting word. Um, D. Edmund Hybert says this about that word confess. It means uh, the same root form means literally to say the same thing. So it means that in confession of sin, we agree to identify it by its true name, this is huge, and admit that it is sin. This is the first step to overcoming sin in our lives. You have to call it sin. Here's how I would say it. Okay, Confession means this, to call it what it is. Call it what it is, which is a lost art which is drifting further and further away, not just, and we could do this, right? Because we see it in our culture. We see it. We see those who are calling good evil and evil good. We see those that are sort of whitewashing and creating gray areas where God said, I separate the light from the darkness. Man is always trying to unite what God has separated there. But let's look introspectively here for a second, and let's ask, where are we doing this in our own lives? Where in your life... Are you not calling sin by its proper name? You got to call it what it is. You gotta call, now, we do this, first of all, between us and God, right? Um, it's 1 John 1, 9 that says that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is where it begins, all right? Um, now, this doesn't mean that, like, God, I used to be terrified by this verse. Like, what if I die before I confess that sin, Have you ever thought that? It's like, well, do do I get forgiven? Okay, let me just, let's do some quick hermeneutics. That's not what that means, okay? Whatever, uh, Whatever drilled that into your head, let's take that out for a second. The context here in 1 John is somebody who denies sin altogether. It was the Gnostic tradition that was bringing that into the church that said, humans aren't sinful. We don't even have sin. Well, if you don't have sin, you can't have forgiveness in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the product of repentance, turning to him. If there's no turning from sin, there's no trusting in Jesus. Okay? And so that, that's the context here. And what this is saying is, if you admit the fact that you are a sinner, if we confess our sins, it's not that God goes, okay, you admit it, now I forgive you. Kind of like the person who like, you're not going to forgive them until they say sorry. This is, this is actually saying that if you confess it, you will always be met with forgiveness, is what this is saying. It's not that forgiveness started the moment you confessed it. It's that forgiveness was always there waiting for you. We confess it, and he's always, it says, faithful and just to forgive us. He's just because of what Jesus did on the cross. He's able to forgive us through Jesus. So we admit it before God. We call it what it is before God. Now, this is not just the entry into the Christian faith. I think this is so important. I think a lot of people look at a verse like this, and they're like, yeah, I mean, in order to be saved, you've got to repent and believe the gospel. Repent, turn from your sin, believe the gospel, trust in Christ. And um, I'm... I've been excited to see kind of how the Spirit of God has been bringing this back into the church. But do we understand that repentance and faith is not just a diagnosis to be saved, but it is the whole of the Christian life? Do we understand this? Repentance and faith is not just for those people out there. One day you'll be like us, repented and faithed. We've done that repentance and faith thing. You know, it was Martin Luther who said appropriately his first of the 95 Theses nailed to Wittenberg door, which led to our movement of what we know as Protestantism today. The first of his 95 Theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers. I don't know about you, I know for me, my relationship with God is often as deep and honest and intimate as my repentance as me being honest with the sin in my life and coming before Him, knowing He's a good, good Father, that I can cast that on, I'm met with forgiveness. It's this constant process, let's understand it this way, of turning and trusting. Turning and trusting. Turning from my sin, calling it what it is, turning from it, and this is, a lot of us miss this part, and trusting in Jesus' grace. Repentance is not just, oh, I'm really bad, I'm really horrible, I did some really bad stuff, okay, and some crocodile tears. Repentance is calling sin what it is. This is how we make war against it. We call it what it is. We recognize the monster for what it is, and we bring it to God. I love the way that David says it. He says that I acknowledge my sin to you. This is so good. And my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see the repentance here? That whole life, God, forgive me for this. David even prays this. God, forgive me for the things I don't see. And and show me the things that I don't see. Now, this is fundamental, but... James takes it a step further and says, if you really want to be a warrior that's having victory over the sin in your life, the way he says it is you also have to confess it to one another. To one another. And maybe in this room you're going, man, I got it. The whole confession before God thing, I, I get God sees the sinfulness that's in me. So I'm not afraid to bring before him what I know he already sees. And that's a part of my life. Repentance and faith." Before God, but there is this sense in which we limit our victory over sins when we become our own accountability partners. When, when we become our own shepherds. So James says confession must also involve this relational direction that there's people in my life that I could also be honest with and be real with. And, um, the hard thing about this is a lot of times I think we look, at, we look at confession wrongly, like this way. It's repentance and faith, but a lot of times we look at it as like a punishment. You know what I mean? Like, oh gosh, I got to, right now you're going, oh man, I got to tell someone that. Right? Confession is not a punishment. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a step into victory. Thank God that he calls us to confess what we could never overcome on our own. You see, because sin, here's here's the thing with sin. Not only is it this kind of like murderous monster, the language, but sin thrives and grows in the dark. It's like mold. It loves the dark. You ever had to deal with some of that mold that was sneaking and creeping in those dark places? That's how sin works. And Jesus said, here's the problem. So many people, the reason why they are not... Coming to me for salvation is because they love the darkness rather than the light, because it's in the light that my deeds are exposed. See, forgiveness is right there. Relationship with Jesus is right there. But I'm too concerned with my reputation that I care more about what people think of me than what God thinks of me. And so there's a lot of us. Come on, we've all been there. You ever, had to, you ever been enslaved to your persona? And you live to try to model and project this version of you that's not you. That is not God's will for your life. God loves you. See, there's a security that's found in knowing that God loves me despite me. That leads you to not care as much about what other people think. Because the one one whose perspective does matter, him, he forgives you. He loves you. Now, that said, I know some of us, we look at the idea of confession, and and maybe this is a part of it for you. Maybe you go, Andrew, I get it. I'm I'm tired of this persona. I'm tired of caring more about my reputation than I do my own holiness. But I haven't found an experience within the church when I've been able to be honest with who I am without being crucified for it. And that is true, sadly. Um, the church, we're like the only army that shoots their wounded. And Jesus says, no, not so with you. It's, it's Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone among you is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Here's the key. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Newsflash, there is nothing that anybody could ever confess to you that you yourself are not susceptible to. Now, maybe we have different, now that's also the problem, we have different challenges and struggles. And so we sort of do that game. We go, oh, oh, it's, that's your sin? Like I said, confess to me, but it wasn't expecting like, whoa, like it's like one of those sins. <laughs> right, right. And we play this game of, of, of sort of being the, our own Pharisees within the church. Whatever the nature of your, whatever sorry, rather whatever the cultural size of your sin, whatever the 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 type of your sin is, the nature of sin is the same. Sin kills, whether it's what we would call big sins or small sins. Some people are going to miss the kingdom of God because of the sin of pride. They're going to miss it by their pride. This much, I mean, think about this. It's like imagine if you saw, this is kind of a set scenario, so I maybe should think about this, but. Let's go with it. Um, You find yourself in a morgue, and you 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 got two dead guys there. One dead guy, he died a long, slow death. The other dead guy got hit by a bus. And it's more newsworthy. They're both dead. It's not like one cause of the death. You know what I'm saying? Okay? So the idea is in the church, we need to recognize the same thing with sin. So we confess it. We come to the light. Now, let me say this. I think there's something to be said about confession with discretion. Confession with discretion. Um, You should trust the people you're confessing to. If you don't trust them, you probably shouldn't confess that thing to them. If they have a reputation of taking what you confess to them and then beating you over the head with it or telling everybody else about it, not the best confidant. But you want that person. And now maybe for you, it's, it's a matter of building. Like you're like, I don't have any relationships like that. Now, maybe for you, that's a matter of looking at your own life and going, man, is that me? i got to engage in more relationships like that? Do i got to step out of my comfort zone into the next level that God is calling me to? Or you know, praying for that? I mean, we have our souls communities, which have become, I love our souls community on Tuesday nights. the one I get to go to. And it's just become this environment of honesty. Like, everyone's kind of just like, yeah, we're all broken. Anybody else broken? You too? Oh, this is great. (laughs) We're just a bunch of dysfunctional people. Good thing Jesus is alive. Um, It's kind of what it's been. And that's the kind of culture we want to create here. I'll even say this. If you go out on a limb and you confess your your, your sin to someone that's in this church and and it kicks back against you, would you please come to me? We don't want that here. Mm -mm. We don't want that here we're not here to beat each other over the head. We're here to pursue the same grace in Jesus' creation uh, confession. It shouldn't be this punishment. It's a gift. Amen? Amen? Now, he says also, look at this. He says, make sure that as you confess to each other, you also pray for one another. Now, he says, right after confess your trespass to one another, he says, and pray for one another. Like, in other words, he's saying they go together, right? So, like, by the way, this is why someone would, would bring their sin to the light and repent before you. Okay, not for you to talk about them, not for you to judge them, but here's the best way to minister to someone that confesses their sin to you. You pray for them. Let me pray for you. Would you pray for me too? By the way, I also have some sin in my life. You know, like It's this, it's this humility that says, let me, let me not take what you're telling me and spread it, but let me pray for you. So that's what James is saying that should look like. But I love what he's also saying here. He says, pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, this is so cool. Because previously, James is talking about the sick person in the church that needs to call the elders for healing. But I love what James does here. He goes, just because God has called a few men to lead in a certain way doesn't mean that you're not called to ministry church, okay? Uh, this, like, church for so long has been treated like, like, um, like a football game, and Easter's the Super Bowl, right, you know? But like... You got the games, you know, and you show up to church, and we're here on the sidelines. Yeah, the pastor! He's in ministry! Now, the way that Scripture teaches it is it's actually the other way around. Biblically, the, the role and the calling of the pastor is not to hog the ministry, but it's to equip the saints, Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints for their ministry. Okay, you're called to ministry. Well, I don't have a microphone in my hand. That has nothing to do with God's definition of ministry. Now, it has something to do. I shouldn't say that. You're like, well, why are you doing what you're doing, sir? All right. Okay. Now, um, ministry is not less than a microphone in your hand, but it's certainly more than that. Okay. And this is, what a practical way that you could fulfill your ministry in life, praying for people. He's saying it's not just up for the pastors to pray for people. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. Pray for one another, that, that, I love this, that you may be healed. So healing, that, God, that healing that God does, he also wants to do it through his body, not just through a couple people in his body. And this is, again, this prayer ministry, what a practical way for us to encourage each other. Maybe you're like, I'm not really good with words. I'm not really good with relationships. Like, I want, I want God to use me to be an encouragement to other people in our, in our church. Where can I start? Great place to start. Also a great place to end, actually. But, but also a great place to start. Just pray for one another. How often in your life, in your day, in your week, do you do this? Someone kind of pours out on you or, or, or someone's real with you, and, and you take the initiative to go, hey, man, can I pray for you? Man, when, I've had that happen multiple times this week even. It's, such a, it's like a refreshment to my soul. It's like, well, lead me to think about God. And, and even the fact that God wants to use our prayers. Someone comes to you and go, man, my back's really hurting. You're like, oh, you should call the elders, man. They'll take And this is like, I feel like, especially as a small church, I love this. This is like, I'm going to run here, okay? There's like um, this common thing that happens where people come and they're like, Andrew, you know what? This is what solace is missing. X, Y, Z, and And what they're thinking is, Andrew, you need to do this. What I'm thinking is, when do you start, you know? Um, Andrew, I really think we, and then this, and this ministry, and that, it's like, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> you think I'm going to do That's so funny. Um, why don't you write me a proposal for it and how God's called you to accomplish it? Mail it over. I'll take a look at it and I'll pray for you. That'll be my ministry. I'll pray for you, you know? Um, and this, this, is how, this is how God sees his church, man the ministry of the people, the priesthood of all believers. So now here's why we pray for another, and here's the reason uh, because it works. <laughs> Most of us, the reason why we don't pray is because we don't believe this. He says in the next verse, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, um, doesn't God know the future from the beginning? And Hasn't God already set everything in motion? Doesn't Ephesians 1 say that God works all things according to the counsel of his will? Doesn't the Psalms say that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases? Yeah, it says that. Doesn't James 5 also say that prayer works? Like, I haven't figured out all the mysteries of God because I'm still trying to figure out the mysteries of, like, me. You know, I'm, like, still, like, I'm also learning about God. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lot to figure out there. Um, here's what we know. For some reason, most of the reasons are unknown. Some are known. God, who knows all, knows the beginning from the end. He's the first and last. He, he knows tomorrow from yesterday. In his word, here's what he tells us. He delights in working in response to the prayers of his people. He just does. In fact, you look back at all the great revivals of history, they have two things in common, and we're covering them already. Repentance and faith, holiness, and prayer. People who prayed, and there's a specific characteristic, Charles Finney talks about it, he says, that that if you look at all the great revivals of history, there's this one characteristic, people praying with the certainty that God's hearing them. Something about that kind of prayer that knows that I'm not just like throwing up wishes to um, some insulation. But that God is, what David said, he's attentive to my prayer. And, and God works through that. He hears the prayer. He cares for the prayers of his people. And it just happens. He just seems to, that's why we should pray for each other. In fact, let's be honest. How many of us, the reason why we don't pray as much is because we kind of just go, oh, God will figure it out. We don't get to do that cop out. We actually, it's more than that. It's an invitation to a really fun life where God uses our prayers to change things. Like, I firmly believe this. I don't believe that Solus is a church because we had some creative ideas and enough willpower. I believe that Solus is a church today because we spent three months doing nothing but praying. And more than three months. You're like, that's it, you know? But, and I believe that God will continue to do and sustain his work here because of prayer. I don't know how that works all together with the mystery of when he does and what he does when he does it. I just know he's called me to ask him to do some things. And I just know that he's told me that if I ask, I'm going to receive. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to err on the side of asking. I'm going to bring that to him. I'm going to believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, even if it's just because he's pleased by my faith. I'm going to come to you, Lord. It's amazing. It works. He gives an example of this. He says, look at Elijah. Elijah was a man, the miracle worker Elijah was a man, but look at this. He was a man with a nature just like ours. When he prayed for it not to rain, it didn't for three years and six months. The Old Testament narrative doesn't give us those details, but here's Elijah. He initiates a drought through prayer, and then he initiates rainfall through prayer. So things that wouldn't have existed existed because someone prayed. I mean, think about this people in your life people that you know loved ones that are that, that come to know jesus because you prayed I, I would wager that every single person in the room today that is set for an eternity in heaven had someone praying for them i know i did i you know i didn't i didn't run to the door of jesus okay i woke up like in the ambulance like where am i oh hey jesus you know? okay and i believe it's because jesus heard prayers um Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. A lot of us would look at Elijah and go, "Oh. Of course the rain stopped. Right? Of course it started raining. Of course there was a floating axe head in the water. Of course that little boy was resurrected. Why? It's Elijah. Isn't there songs about him, right? He's taken up in a fiery chariot. I mean, come on. Of course God did those things because he's Elijah. Of course the apostles were used that way. They were apostles. And James goes, um, you think Elijah was like special? Like a special Navy SEAL kind of human or something? Check us out. Elijah, you know what he is? Flesh and blood like you. you. You think it stopped raining because of Elijah? What if it was a man just like you and me who believed? That there was a God, and that God could even violate the own laws that he created. What if there was a man, just like you and me, who actually believed that God hears prayer? That's what happened. And and he was a man just like you and me. You go, I want to be an Elijah. Start praying. See what happens. See the adventure that comes in your life. Because here's what's so cool. Those two things we have in in common with Elijah, right? Uh, He is a human nature. He has a human nature. But you know in in Christ, the Bible actually tells us that we also have what's called a divine nature as Christians. If anything, we got a leg up on Elijah. Like Elijah, check us out. Watch my life, okay? teach you a few things now this is interesting second peter tells us this about those in christ it says god's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very good promises so that through them you have become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire this is our theme through james that we are new creations in christ Just this incredible hope that we have to be new in Jesus and the adventure of faith that we have. We confess to one another, we pray for another, and then we close out with this last one. The last one that James tells us to do is to turn back one another. As we close out here, verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of of sins. We have these three one another ministries. One has to do with a certain posture towards sin that cares more about my own holiness than I do my own reputation. And so I confess my sin with discretion to one another. Um, the other says that God has called me to hear that sin that's being confessed, to pray for that person, to pray for one another. And the reason why we pray is because it works, because God uses it. Not because we're special elite people, but because God is God, and he hears prayer, the prayers of his people, especially those who are his sons and daughters who have his own nature. And then lastly, we have this last almost ministry. We've had like three ministries here. One is like how to have sin confessed to you. One is how to pray for others. And the last one another has to do with sort of this rescue ministry, this rescue mission. And it's a unique one. It's not one that we're taught on enough or or that is talked about enough in the church. Um, But I do believe that this is a kind of mission and ministry that is going to, over time, continue to take up more and more of what the church is called to do. Which is not just reach people who do not know Jesus. That's a part of the mission. But the longer we seek to be Christians in our culture, I'm going to tell you, most of your mission and most of your ministry is going to be to reach people who knew Jesus but have walked away from him. More and more. And you can look at the statistics of the, um, as they say, the droves of young people that are leaving the church. And this is, this is scriptural. The Bible tells us this in 1 Timothy 4. It says that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Really heavy language there, right? Now, the idea there is no, nobody wakes up in church and goes you know what, I really love the gospel, but I th- I'm thinking of like exploring some doctrines of demons today. That's kind of like, I'm just kind of thinking like I need to explore that. And of course not. Uh, the key word there is um, the idea of deceiving spirits, the deception. Uh, it's sort of, sort of the subtle deception. It's, it's often Satan uh, as a, a roaring lion prowling around, taking out usually an individual isolated Christian. But this deception that happens that causes many people to walk away from the faith. Um, this is a particular mission field that I am burdened for. Like, it'd be really cool if I would love to see new people come to Jesus and to see eternities changed, right? Um, I would love for us to baptize a handful of people this year. But you know what has thrilled me about our church this year? There have been people, some of you who are in this room, that have come back to Jesus since we started Solas Church. That thrills me. Um, And James is saying that, that, listen, that's all of our call. A Progressively post-Christian culture, a hard culture to reach, because that post-Christian culture, it's a reaction against the Christian culture. It's a harder and harder culture to reach. It's going to require more and more authentic Christians. It's going to weed out the fake ones. But there's this commission, man, this commission uh, that, that I love the incentive. And you know what James does in describing this call to turn back one another? Um, James puts a weight weight on it. I love what he says. He goes, let them know. I love that. Let them know that he who turns one of those who have strayed from the faith back to Jesus, let them know the weight of what God's accomplished there. He's turned someone from death. The idea could be here. Who knows if they were ever, ever saved? I don't know. I don't know. It's case to case in a lot of ways. But the weight involved here is that you're bringing someone back to a saving relationship, a life changing relationship with Jesus. And if that doesn't excite you, what does? Wow. God, use me for that. Because isn't Jesus that? Isn't Jesus the one that leaves the 99 for that one lost sheep? Isn't that us? Aren't we prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Aren't we on a daily basis flirting with death and destruction? Thank God for the gospel that rescues. That says, "I don't care how far you've gone; my love goes further." That's a gospel people need to hear. And for too long, what the church has done is turned their backs on people who have walked away. Which interesting language—they've <laughs> turned their backs. Who have you turned your back on, maybe, that's walked away from the church because of whatever reason, whatever sin they're in? Maybe you need to be reminded of the tremendous love of God that loves you through your wandering. And let that love turn your back around to chase after that person with the same power of the gospel that reached you. And now the back turning is you turning them back to Jesus. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this time we've had in your word today. We thank you for your faithful presence. We thank you that you've been here with us. We thank you that you've been teaching us. And God, we just admit to you this morning that we are nothing without the counsel of your word. We need you, God. Lord, we we can all admit, I admit, Lord, we are prone to wander. There might even be some people in this room today that they're here, but spiritually they've wandered. Thank you, Jesus, that you are That display of our Father. Who doesn't wait for us to show up at the doorstep. but God, you are the one that chases us down. You meet us there. Thank you for doing that for us. We acknowledge that our standing this morning is only because of the grace of Jesus and nothing else. Lord, may that grace produce in our lives a certain posture towards sin, that we would confess it, God, first to you, but also to others. May it lead us, God, to to pray, believing that you are faithful, that you hear, so that you're going to hear our prayers, you're going to respond. Lord, may that same grace lead us to not just come into you, but to be sent out by you, bringing your love and grace everywhere we go. Thank you, Jesus, that you are who you are, that you are our wonderful counselor. In your name we pray. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.